Genesis 24, 1 through 28, and 54 through 61. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his, his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets from her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. 
The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. The word of the Lord. Last fall, um, we began a series on the book of Genesis, and we got about halfway through. This fall, we're coming back to pick it up again, and we're going to finish the book of Genesis this fall. Now, the book of Genesis is actually a pretty simple story. Uh, The first 11 chapters uh, tell us how God created the world to be a place of beauty and wholeness and flourishing and blessing, but because of humanity's rebellion, we've been on this Uh, huge, tragic, downward spiral ever since then. But then in chapter 12, it's the turning point in the story. In chapter 12, God comes to one man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, through your family, I want to save the world. Uh, Essentially, he says, Abraham, I want to make you the father of a new humanity, um, the the father of a new community, a community that is going to carry within it um, the seed of a new world a world of peace and justice and flourishing and righteousness and holiness. And also, Abraham, I want this community to carry within it a messianic seed, the promise of a son, one of your descendants, Abraham, that one day will come and will conquer all sin, all evil, all suffering, all death for all time. In many ways, you could say that the whole book of Genesis is all about um, this promise of a son, this promise of a messianic seed who would come and heal the world. So we looked at Abraham's story last fall, and this is kind of the end of his story and the beginning of Isaac's story. Now, Abraham's story, as we just said, it all revolves around this promise of a son. That is Abraham's story. But there's a problem with that because God promised a son to Abraham, but the problem is Abraham and his wife were old, um, and she was barren. And, and the whole story revolves around this question, this big problem. God promised Abraham a son, but it seems impossible. And the big question is, how is God going to fulfill his promise? It seems impossible. How is he going to do it? But he does do it. And so here at this point in the story, Abraham has a son. He's finally gotten that promised son. But God solved one problem, and now we have a whole new problem, because the problem is, in order for this family to carry on, Isaac the son needs a bride. 
In order for this family to carry this messianic seed, there's got to be a bride. So the story we just read is all about how that happens. And actually, it's the longest single narrative in the whole book of Genesis. Isn't that interesting? And that means, actually, that this story has a lot of very important things to teach us. And as I thought about all the various things this passage teaches us and how to kind of tie it all together, I would say this. There's one theme that ties all of the themes together, and it's this. This story is all about God's providential but hidden guidance to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. God's providential but hidden guidance to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. And as soon as we say that, we realize this is a very resonant passage for us, especially as modern Western individuals. Because as modern Western individualistic people, we both uh, want and expect to have control over our lives. And as modern Western individuals, we both want and expect to find um, personal fulfillment for our own individual lives. Now, that means that as modern Western Christians, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on finding God's will for our lives. And that also means that as modern Western Christians, we have a lot of anxiety attached to the possibility of somehow missing God's will for our lives. You know, everybody in this room, your lives are filled with all kinds of decisions, big decisions, small decisions, decisions about your life, about your work, about your career, about school, about marriage, about family, about where you're going to live, about what you're going to do, all kinds of personal decisions, huge decisions and small decisions. And the questions we ask about these decisions are all focused on, you know, how am I going to find the guidance I need to make this decision? What if I make the wrong decision? What if I blow it? What if I mess up? What, what's going to happen to my life? What's going to happen to my story? What happens if I don't find the guidance that I need? We crave guidance, and yet we worry that if we don't follow the guidance right or get the guidance that we need, that somehow we're going to mess up our life and miss God's will for our life. We crave guidance, and this passage teaches us about how we actually find guidance for our lives, but this passage does it in a way that we really aren't expecting. There are three main characters in this passage, Abraham, his servant, and Rebecca. And each one of these characters has something to teach us about God's guidance in our lives. And that's how we're going to look at this passage. Abraham teaches us about the grace of God's guidance. The servant teaches us about the nature of God's guidance. And Rebecca teaches us about the response to God's guidance. The grace of God's guidance, the nature of God's guidance, and our response to that's guidance, to God's guidance. So first, Abraham shows us about the grace of God's guidance. Look with me here. Uh, the story begins with Abraham. Um, it's a very long passage, but it's actually a pretty simple story. Abraham, at this point in the story, as we mentioned, he finally has the son that God promised. But in order for the son to carry on this family line, he needs a bride. So there are a couple of problems with that. And one of the big problems is this. Um, God called Abraham out of his original homeland in order to go to a new place to become the father of a new community, a new countercultural community of grace. That means that Abraham was supposed to be the father of a new people, a new community, in a new place. That meant that neither Abraham nor any of his uh, descendants could go back to the old homeland. Don't go back, God said. Don't go back to that place. So 
that was one problem. But the other problem is this. None of the women that were present in the place where he was at were suitable brides for Isaac because at least at this point in the story, it was really important that the family be contained within the same bloodline. So on the one hand, Abraham and his family can't go back to the old homeland, but on the other hand, nobody in this current homeland could provide a suitable wife for Abraham. It's a big problem. What's going to happen? How are they going to solve this problem? Abraham calls his chief servant and he says to him, I want you to find a bride for my son Isaac. But, but none of the women here are a part of my kindred and, and we can't go back to the old homeland. So I want you to go back to the old homeland and find a bride for my son Isaac. And the servant says, okay, but what if none of the women there are willing to come with me? Shall I bring Isaac back there so he can find a wife? And Abraham says, no. Do not take my son Isaac back there. If, if the woman won't follow you, we'll find some other way. But under no circumstances are you to bring my son Isaac back to that place. God called me out of that place. We can't go back there. So not once, but twice, Abraham commands his servant in the strongest possible language not to take Isaac back to the homeland. Now, here's what's so remarkable about that. This is the final episode in Abraham's life. And if you were to read through Abraham's story in Genesis in one sitting, one of the things you'd notice is this. You'd get to this last part, this final episode in his life, and you'd say, ah, Abraham's encountering another problem, but I think this time he's learned some lessons. He's doing things differently this time. What do I mean by that? You go back to the beginning of Abraham's story. God makes him that promise. Abraham, you're going to have a son. And, and the problem with that promise was that, you know, Abraham said to God, well, great, God, but, you know, my wife and I are senior citizens, and even more than that, she's been barren her whole life. And God says, don't worry, Abraham, I'll take care of it. And Abraham says, actually, I am kind of worried about it. In fact, God, I don't trust that you've got this covered, so I'm going to actually help you out a little bit with this problem, God. And so if you read Abraham's story, yeah, you do see these incredible mountaintop experiences where he's got this really strong faith. Abraham is not called the father of faith for no reason, but you also have other places in Abraham's story where he really blows it. And, and this problem, this challenge in his life is the primary place where he really messed up because God promised Abraham a son, but God um, Abraham, that is, was anxious about God fulfilling this promise. Abraham was anxious about God taking so long to fulfill this promise. So what he did was he decided to take matters into his own hands. And he took the servant of his wife, Sarah, her name was Hagar, and um, he slept with her and they produced a son, uh, a young boy named Ishmael. And the results of that were tragic in many people's lives. In fact, a lot of times people will read the Bible and they'll see polygamy in the Bible and they think, oh, mistakenly they will think that the Bible actually supports polygamy. Not if you're really reading the Bible, it doesn't. In fact, if you really learn to read the Bible for what it's telling us, you'll see that every time polygamy appears in the Bible, the, the results are absolutely disastrous for the lives of the people in, in that story, especially for the women. That's the point. One of the points of this bringing it up is to show us how disastrous it is when we don't do things God's way. 
In fact, we're going to see that even more as we go along throughout this story in the lives of some of the other children of Abraham. But here's the point. We're going to, Abraham wanted to take matters into his own hands. Wanted to help God out with, the, with, the, with God's promise to his life. And the results of that were tragic. The results of that were disastrous. Abraham took matters into his own hands and he blew up a lot of people's lives as a result of that. Now here's the question. Did God fulfill his promise to Abraham? Yes. Did God accomplish his purposes for Abraham's life? You bet he did. But did Abraham cooperate perfectly with God? Not by a long shot. And here's the point. God's work in your life does not depend on you getting everything absolutely right. It depends on his grace. God's work in your life, his fulfillment of his promises for your life and for this world, do not depend on you getting everything perfectly right. It depends on his grace. A lot of times we get really anxious. You know, we say, oh no, what if I mess up? What if I blow it? What if I make a mistake? I'm going to miss my one shot at God's perfect will for my life. And Abraham's story is proof that that's not true. God's work in your life doesn't depend on you getting everything perfectly right. It depends on his grace. Now, that is not an excuse for disobedience. That is not an excuse to take matters in your own hands and just willy-nilly decide you're going to do things the way you want to do them. If you do that, the results oftentimes will be tragic. You will blow up your life. You will blow up the lives of the people around you. But one of the great themes of this story, in fact, throughout the whole Bible... As you read through it, especially in this story, you see over and over and over again, there's a word. It keeps talking about the steadfast love of God. God's steadfast love. God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his purposes. God's steadfast love. That's covenant language. That's language that speaks of God's unrelenting commitment to his people and to his purposes in this world. In fact, that word steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. It's fun to say, chesed. Uh, chesed is a love that, that never lets go, never lets you down, and never gives up. That's what kind of love that is. And that's what kind of love God is showing to his people and his purposes in this passage. That means that God's love for you is bigger than your failures. And God's love for you is bigger than your disobedience. And this is one of the biggest themes, not just in the book of Genesis, but in the whole Bible. Because it is very common for us to read the Bible and we think, well, the Bible is a bunch of stories about all these moral heroes. People whose lives are examples that we're supposed to emulate in order to be virtuous, obedient, moral, holy people, and therefore we're going to get God's love and acceptance in our lives. Friends, that is actually almost the exact opposite of what the Bible is really all about. The Bible is not a series of moral heroes teaching us how to live so we can get God's love in our lives. The Bible is a series of moral failures, <laughs> teaching us how we need the one true hero, that's God, who gives us our love, his love, into our lives, not on the basis of our obedience, but on the basis of his grace. That's what the whole book is about. So the first point here is the grace of God's guidance. It doesn't depend on you getting everything right. It depends on his grace. That doesn't relieve us of responsibility, but it does mean that we can relax a little bit and put our faith in the fulfiller of the promises, not in our power to help God out with his promises in our life. So that's the first thing. We see the grace of God's guidance. But secondly, we see here the nature of God's guidance. And we see that especially with the servant of Abraham who goes to find a bride for Isaac. 
you know, one of the themes that keeps popping up, um, especially with this servant, is the idea of being on the way or being on a journey or being on the road. Um, you see it in verses 21. You see it in verse 56 where this servant talks about the Lord prospering his way or his journey. Um, you see it especially in verse 27 where he says, the Lord has led me in the way. So there's a lot of talk about being on the way or on a journey. Um, even more than that, there's a word that pops up 17 times just in this one passage. It's, it's the word, variations of the word to go. That, that one word is actually the one word that, that summarizes and defines the whole Abraham narrative in the Bible, go. Because God went to Abraham and he said, Abraham, go. Go to the place that I'm going to show you. Abraham, get thee on the way. Go. That is one of the main words that define Abraham's experience, one of the main words that defines this story as well. To go, get thee on the way. Get on the road. Get on the journey. Now that, you know, that really resonates with us because it's very natural, it's almost second nature for us to think of our lives as being a journey or a path, or some kind of way that we have to follow. You know, we crave guidance, and a path shows us the way to go. But it's crucial for us to understand that when the Bible talks about this, life is a journey, it means something very different than the way we would normally think about it. And I want to point out three ways in particular. The first is this. God's guidance is goal-oriented, not process-oriented. And here's what I mean by that. Um, when we think about life being a journey... One of the most common ways we describe that in our culture is we say this, um, it's not about the destination. The journey is the destination. Have you ever heard that? The journey is the destination. Now that could mean a couple of different things, depending on how you interpret it. If when we say that, if, if what we mean is that it's more about who we become than what actually happens to us, then the Bible actually would affirm that. A lot of times you see in the Bible that God is far more concerned about making us into a particular kind of person than he is concerned with the particular circumstances of our lives. That's true. But if when we say the journey is the destination, if, if by saying that what we mean is that life is a never-ending process of self-discovery, self-expression, and self-fulfillment with no particular goal in mind for us as a person and no particular goal in mind for the universe as a whole, if that's what we mean when we say the journey is the destination, then we are far, far away from the biblical vision of what it means to be on a journey or on a path. Let me put this another way. We live in what we could call a secular culture. And what that means is this. That means that God plays no meaningful role in our public life together. In our public life together. So you may believe in God, and that's fine. You have this private belief. As long as you keep it private, don't bring it with you into the public realm. But in our public life together, God plays no meaningful role. In our movies, in our music, on TV, especially in commercials. In our news or in our newspapers, in the universities, on social media, in every sphere of our public life together, God is absent. God plays no meaningful role in our public life together. That means that as far as we are concerned as a whole, as a society, there is no ultimate meaning. There is no ultimate purpose. There is no ultimate goal. And that means that, that your story as such is not a part of anything bigger than your own individual story. And that means that, that our stories, our journey gets shrunk down 
to a story that's all about our own personal narratives and what's happening in our lives. And when that happens, when there is no greater goal, when there is no bigger story, our journey becomes all about our own personal experiences. It's all about what happens to us. So maybe you go to work and then you get home at the end of the day, you go to the bar, have a drink. Maybe you smoke something. Maybe you hook up with somebody. Maybe you go someplace exotic, take a selfie, you know, post it on Instagram. Rinse and repeat. That experience-oriented life, process-oriented life, because there is no greater goal, there is no bigger purpose. And that's what our culture teaches us, how our culture teaches us to see our lives and our experience in this world. But on the other hand, look at the servant in this story. He's on a journey too, but notice that his journey is all a part of something bigger than himself. His journey is what? To find a bride for Isaac. Well, why? Well, because it's all part of this goal of continuing the family line. Why? Because God wants to make this family into a special kind of community. Why? Because one day there's going to be a redeemer that's going to come from this family. Why? Because God wants to use this redeemer to renew the whole world. It's all part of a bigger story. You see, God's guidance is goal-oriented, not process-oriented, not experience-oriented. That's the first thing. But secondly, we see here that God's guidance is outer-directed, not inner-directed. And here's what I mean by that. It's outer-directed, not inner-directed. Go back to our culture's notion of what it means to be on a journey. Life is a journey. Okay, if that's the case, who or what is the guide on this journey we're on? Your feelings. This is how we say it in our culture. We say, who's to say what's right or wrong? The important thing is that I find what's true for me, that I do what's right for me. The important thing is that I follow my heart, achieve my desires, my dreams, and, and the guide is how I feel about it. That's our guide on our journey. In our modern secular notion of being on a journey, the guide is our feelings. It's interdirected. This passage, on the other hand, gives us a very different vision of what it means to be on a journey because it says that God is the guide. It's not inner-directed, it's outer-directed. So again, if you look at how the story puts it, in verse 7, Abraham tells his servant, God will send his angel before you. It's outer-directed. Or in verse 27, the servant says, the Lord has led me in the way. You know, it's really good, by the way, we have to say this, it's good that our culture puts... Um, an emphasis on the emotional life. It's good that our culture acknowledges the importance of the emotional life. That was not the case 60, 70, 80 years ago. It's a really healthy thing that, that we do have this acknowledgement and emphasis in our culture on the importance of emotions. The Bible would affirm that, by the way. I mean, read the book of Psalms. That is a very emotion-laden um, series of songs. So, Emotions are important, but there's a big difference between acknowledging your emotions and bowing to them. The ultimate guide for your life is not your personal feelings. Feelings change. God doesn't. In fact, another way we could say this is that God's guidance is not morally ambiguous. There is actually such a thing as right and wrong that exists apart from you and outside of whether or not you believe in it or how you personally feel about it. And that's not to say that every decision we make is a moral decision. That's far from being true. But there are a number of decisions in our lives that actually have some moral implications. And God actually gives us some pretty clear guidance on those things. For instance, you know, we have questions in our lives. Like, should I forgive that person who hurt me? The answer is always yes to that question, by the way. 
Or should I sleep with that person I'm not married to? The answer to that question is always no. There are some very clear guidelines that God gives us. God's guidance in our life is outer-directed, not inner-directed. If you make your feelings the the basis upon which you make decisions in your life, you're going to blow up your life. You're going to blow up the lives of the people around you because your feelings are not a reliable guide for navigating the universe. You will blow up your life and the lives of the people around you. God's guidance is outer-directed, not inner-directed. But lastly... God's guidance is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, ordinary, not spectacular. His guidance is ordinary, not spectacular. And here's what this means. One of the most noticeable things about this story is how God orchestrates everything that happens through the most mundane, ordinary, commonplace events of life. I mean, There are no signs in the skies here. There are no miracles. There's no voices from heaven. There's no burning bush in this story. What do we have? A peasant village, a well at evening time, a a young girl drawing water for camels. It's the most ordinary, mundane, commonplace things. But God uses all of them to accomplish his person, I mean his purpose. And here's the point, okay? We don't need to wait for certainty before we start moving. A lot of times we get, we get so anxious about, you know, what if I miss God's will? What if I make the wrong decision? What if I don't make the right choice? We want certainty. We want control. We don't want to mess up our lives. We want to have certainty. And so we oftentimes will be waiting until we get some kind of certainty, some kind of assurance that we're on the right path before we'll actually get out on the road and start moving. And here in this passage, we see we don't always get that. What do we get? Let me summarize everything we've seen up until this point just to give us some very basic, practical principles for how God guides us in our lives. First, remember, God's guidance is goal-oriented. That means God gives us a vision, okay? He gives us a vision for what he wants in your life and for what he wants in this world. What God wants, his vision, is to build a community of people, a counterculture of grace that carries within it the seeds of a new kind of world, a world of peace and justice and wholeness and flourishing and righteousness and forgiveness and most of all, um, redemption through Jesus. That's God's vision. That's the first thing we get, his vision for the world. But secondly, remember, God's guidance is outer directed. So in addition to the vision that God gives us, he also gives us some guardrails. It's kind of like, you know how you're driving on a road, a lot of times they'll have those guardrails on the side of the road. There's a lot of freedom to drive anywhere you want in that road while you're driving down the road, there's only two conditions. First of all, you have to be moving in the right direction. That's God's vision. Second of all, you just gotta keep within those guardrails. The guardrails are there to keep you from falling off one side of the road to the other. The guardrails are there to keep you from crashing. And that leads us to the third principle. God gives us a vision, he gives us guardrails, but also remember what we saw. God gives us an assurance that if we do crash, it's not game over. God gives us a vision. He gives us some guardrails. He gives us this wonderful assurance that that even if we do crash, he's not going to let that stop him from accomplishing his purposes in our life and in the world. Now, here's the beautiful part of all of this. When you put all those things together, we don't know how God is going to work everything out. We have no, no certainty at all. But the point is that we don't let uncertainty and we don't let fear of failure stop us from getting out on the road and starting to drive. So for instance, look at Abraham and the servant. 
Abraham tells his servant, go back to my homeland to find a bride. Okay? So Abraham, he's got the vision. We need a bride. People of, of counterculture of grace. He's got the guardrails. Well, I can't go back. Isaac can't go back. So you're going to have to go back. So he's got the vision. He's got the guardrails. But then he says to the servant, you know, go for it. Go back and get the bride. And the servant says, well, what if no woman wants to come back with me? And Abraham says, well, okay, then I release you from your oath. And I guess God's going to have to find some other way to fulfill his purposes in this world. But let's not let that stop us from getting out on the road and starting to drive, right? Okay. So that's how it works in Abraham's life. Or look at the servant. Um, I, I love, you know, that scene at the village. He gets to the village. He gets to the well. He starts praying. And you can see in his prayer, he has no idea how things are going to work out or whether they are going to fall out according to the way he's praying. He's just praying. He, you know, it says, he may bring a young woman to the well. God may not bring a young woman to the well. She may water the camels. She may not water the camels. She may say, yes, I'll go with you. She may not say, yes, I'll go with you. There is no guarantee. There's no certainty. But, but I love the way it, it says it, you know, like in verse 15 that, um, you know, he gets done with this prayer and it says, before he had finished speaking, ta-da. No, it doesn't say that. It says, behold. It's the same meaning. Behold, Rebecca shows up. All of a sudden, God works these things out, but he had no idea if it was going to work out the way he thought it was going to work out. There's no certainty. There's no guarantee. But lo and behold, Rebecca shows up. And lo and behold, she starts watering the camels. And lo and behold, she says, yes, I will go with you back to Isaac. Through the most ordinary, commonplace events, God works out his purposes. And I love the way the servant puts this in verse 27. You know, after all of this happens and he sees Rebecca and he's just blown away, he can't believe God's working all this stuff out. So he starts praising God for the way everything is working out. But what does he say? He says, the Lord has led me in the way. Now, I love the way the old King James Version puts this. It says, I being in the way, the Lord led me. I being in the way, the Lord led me. It was the being in the way that made the difference. So it's kind of like, do you remember that movie, Finding Nemo? And the dad fish Marlin is looking for his lost son, Nemo. And at one point in the movie, he meets that surfer turtle named Crush. And Crush invites him up into the East Australian current. It's a very powerful stream of water, current of water. And as soon as the dad Marlin swims up into that current, he's just carried along by the strength and the power of that current, I, being in the way, the Lord led me. That's how God's guidance works. He gives us the vision. He gives us the guardrails. And he gives us this wonderful assurance that even if we blow it, his grace is bigger than our failures. It's actually pretty simple. But there's one last thing we need to see here. We've seen that Abraham shows us the grace of God's guidance and the servant shows us the nature of God's guidance. But lastly, Rebecca shows us our response to God's guidance. Because what have we got so far? We've got a vision, we've got some guardrails, and we've got an assurance. As I said, it's pretty simple. But notice I did not say it's easy, because it's not. What is the servant inviting Rebecca into here? Is it just a marriage? No, it's way bigger than that. 
Is it even just becoming a part of a, a family, a family that's going to grow into thousands upon thousands of people? No, it's bigger even than that. The servant is inviting Rebecca to become a part of God's way, to become part of the people of the way. And understand something, this is not just an invitation to join a movement. You know, there are a lot of movements in the world that are working for peace and justice. And you can be a part of that movement and still have your personal life after you're done serving the movement. You know, you, go, you put in your hours, you serve, and then you go home, have a glass of red wine, chill out, watch Netflix. You can still have a personal life outside of your commitment to the movement, but this is not like that. This isn't something you do in addition to your personal life. This is something that completely reorders your whole life because the call to join God on his way is not just a call to something, it's a call away from something. God called Rebecca to leave her home, to leave her family, to leave her kindred, to leave her nation, to leave her God, her cultures, her um, everything, her dreams, to, call, to leave everything behind her and follow this God on his way in the world. And when you understand that, you realize that Rebecca is just like Abraham. And that's the point. God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want to make you the father of a new community, a revolutionary counterculture of grace that's going to carry within it the seeds of a whole new world and carry within it the seeds of a, of a, a deliverer who one day will come and heal the world. That's what I want for you. But Abraham, here's the deal. you got to leave everything. you got to leave your home, your father's house, your family, your kindred, your nation. you got to leave all the old gods, all your old cultural ways. you got to leave everything behind you and follow me on my way. That's God's call on Abraham's life, and that's God's call on Rebecca's life. The only way this community can grow, the only way this mission can be moved forward is for people like Rebecca and many others to say, yes, I will go. That means that we have to be willing to leave everything and follow God on his way, to allow uh, ourselves to get caught up in this current and be carried along in this current. And that's hard. You know, that's scary. We have to say that because immediately we start thinking, oh no, but what about me? What about my dreams? What about my desires? What about my passions? What about my life? What about my story? God, are you calling me to give all of that up for you? And God is saying, no, I'm calling you to find all of that in me. But that is not the way we normally think about things. There was a very popular, very influential book many years ago called The Alchemist. I don't know if anybody here has ever read it. Very uh, influential um, a number of years ago. And one of the main themes, the main theme, the main statement that keeps popping up in that book over and over and over again is this. It says, when you really want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. We really like that, don't we? That's the way we want the world to work. That's the way we want the universe to be. When you really want something, when you really desire something, all of the universe will conspire to help you to achieve it. Isn't that the way we want the world to be? Because it's all about us. Now, obviously, there's some problems with a statement like that. Does that mean that the universe was conspiring to help Hitler kill millions of Jews? I mean, he really wanted it. 
Obviously, there are problems with that, but that doesn't stop us from wanting the world to be a place where that's the truth. Because we do, we, it's about us, our dreams, our desires. We want to make it about us. That means that when we think about God's guidance, when we think about God's work in the world, we instinctively think about what God is doing in my life so that the decisions we make are about me and my personal story and how God is going to help me advance my purposes in the world. We think of God as fitting his purposes into our story. But this passage, and in fact, the whole Bible tells us the exact opposite. In fact, if I were going to boil the message of this story down to one thing, here's what it is. God is not fitting his purposes into your story. He's fitting your story into his purposes. That's what this is about. If you start thinking about your life in this world through that lens, friends, that will completely transform the way you think about all the decisions that you're faced with in your life. If God is not fitting his purposes into your story, he's fitting your story into his purposes. That changes the way we think about all the questions that face us because all of a sudden the question is not, how are all these decisions I have to make going to advance my purposes? The real question is, how does God want to use my life to advance his purposes? My home, my career, my relationships, my dreams, my desires. It's not how is God going to help me fulfill these things. It's how is God going to use these things to advance his purposes in the world. And as I said, that's hard. I mean, how are you going to respond to something like that? How did Rebecca respond? It's the climax of the story. The servant comes to her and he says, will you go? I mean, it's really her choice and and the, the whole climax of the story is, is it's one word in the original Hebrew. She just says, go. I will go. She says yes to God's purposes. And that means saying no to some extent to her own personal story. God is not fitting his purposes into your story. He's fitting your story into his purposes. And friends, I understand, like I said, that's hard. It's scary. But do you know how you can do it? Do you, do you know how you can want to do it? It's by seeing that Jesus already did it for you. Friends, there is nothing God will ever call you to leave that he has not already left infinitely more for you. And there is nothing that God will ever call you to do that he has not already done infinitely more for you. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate Abraham. He is the ultimate Rebecca. Jesus left his father's house. Don't you know that? Jesus left his native country. Jesus left a throne in heaven to come to earth and follow God on the way laid out for him. But understand something, Jesus' way did not lead to an earthly throne. It led to a cross. Talk about sacrificing your personal story for the sake of some greater purpose. You know, we wonder, we worry, we think, what about me? What is God, how is God going to fulfill my story, my purposes in this world? Don't you understand that on the cross, Jesus lost his personal story so that he could make it about you? Friends, that is not the end of your story. That is the beginning of your story. That's the beginning of a whole new story. God is not fitting his purposes into your story. He's fitting your story. He's weaving your story into his purposes You know, the servant's job in the story is pretty simple, pretty basic. Go find a bride for the son. Do you know that throughout the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ is called the bride 
of Christ. That means that our job is, is pretty basic, pretty simple, and pretty similar to the servant's job. That we are people of the way who are out there inviting other people to come join this way. To become a part of this new community. To become the bride of Christ. A part of this revolutionary countercultural community of grace that carries within it the seed of this new world because we carry within it the hope and the light and the love of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Embrace God's vision. Heed his guardrails. Rest in the assurance of his grace. Will you say, yes, I will go? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this story and the wonderful things you show us, Lord. Father, we confess to you that we get really anxious and, and afraid, not only about the decisions that we have to make in life, but about whether or not our personal dreams and desires are ever going to get fulfilled. And so we lay those things before you now, and we um, ask you to help us see more and more how your promises enfold all of our deepest dreams and desires up into your greater purposes in this world. Help us to leave, Lord, um, not to hate, but to leave and to join you in your way in this world that many others may come to know and live and flourish in this way as well. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.